Chapter 29 of the Psychology of Religion by Edwin Diller Starbuck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 29, Sanctification. The religious experience, known in theological terms as sanctification, or the second work of grace, lends itself so readily to psychological analysis that it deserves a special consideration. Its chief value in our present discussion is that it shows in an emphasized form certain aspects of growth which have found both to follow conversion and also to occur in the religion of mature life of those who have not passed through conversion. In its usual designation, sanctification is regarded as a special act of the Holy Spirit by which one is, in a peculiar way, freed from sin and set apart for a holy life. For our purpose, we shall leave behind the theological content of the term its distinction from regeneration and justification, the question as to whether it is a sudden experience or a process of growth and grace, and shall allow our conception of the experience to develop as it may out of the analysis of the records of their own experiences, as made by persons who have professed sanctification. Its relation to conversion and its significance in religious growth will appear as we proceed. One of my pupils, Dr. Ivan Deitch, succeeded in bringing together and organizing 51 records of sanctification. His list of questions was exhaustive enough to call out not only the immediate events centering around sanctification, but also the essential features of the life history of the respondents. He has kindly allowed me to use his tabulated results. The interpretation of the data is partly Dr. Deitch's and partly my own. Before proceeding to a discussion of sanctification itself, we should stop a moment to look at the personnel of the respondents. As to age at the time of replying, they range from 20 to 77. Only five are below 30. The greater number are between 30 and 60. In respect to nationality, 23 are American, 11 English, 5 Scotch. Besides these, there are a few scattered ones. Just as in the study of the post-conversion development about one-half of the Methodists, besides these, 14 belong to the Salvation Army, Nine are Baptists, two Christian scientists, and one is a Unitarian. Thirty-five are men, and sixteen are women. Sanctification seems to bear throughout close relation to conversion. All but one of the fifty-one persons passed through conversion at some time previous to sanctification. Thirty-eight of the number experienced sudden conversion. Of the hundred persons whose post-conversion growth was followed in the last chapter, fourteen not used in this section, had already, at the time of writing, gone on to sanctification. That is, it seems that sanctification is almost invariably preceded by conversion. These service considerations indicate that it is a step in one of the normal lines of growth which follow conversion. On the other hand, among the 237 persons studied in Part 2, none claim sanctification as a distinct step in growth, although many of the characteristics of adult religion among those persons bear, as we shall see, close kinship to the essential qualities of sanctification. There are several different views of sanctification among the Protestant churches. Two conceptions, somewhat at variance, are those which regard it, on the one hand, as a gradual development following upon regeneration, and on the other, as an instantaneous act. Those who hold the latter view are usually the ones who likewise believe that regeneration is a sudden, definite step, such as has been described in conversion. Of those who replied to the list of questions, 48 of the 51 were of this second class and said that sanctification was an instantaneous event. This should be taken into account in the discussion which follows. It is obvious that these people are temperamentally similar to those studied in Part 1, 
except that they possess the peculiarities which distinguish the conversion group in even greater degree. Nearly half of the 51 cases report that outside of these two marked events in their development, they pass through periods of unusual exhilaration. More than a fourth had such periods frequently. As we proceed, we shall find evidences continually that the qualities of the sanctification phenomena are colored by temperamental conditions. While it would be desirable to have an equal number of those who profess sanctification as a result of gradual development, we may nevertheless expect to find the same essential elements in the process brought into clearer relief in the study of the sudden experience. When we come to consider the intimate nature of sanctification, its similarities to conversion appear on every hand. The distinctive things in the earlier experience are even emphasized in the later. Both events in the lives of the persons we are studying usually come suddenly. Both mark a transition from a lower to a higher state of perfection. Both are preceded by a period of longing and discontent, of striving after satisfaction. Before sanctification, this discontent is similar to the conviction period before conversion, but as a rule, with the difference that the sense of sin has given place to a feeling of incompleteness and imperfection. These extracts from the sanctification records will illustrate. I felt a deep inward conviction of the need of something from God for myself and felt God's call to complete union with Him. I felt I was living below the experience God would have me attain. With others, I had been earnestly seeking for complete consecration for a number of years. I had been troubled and distressed for some time. It was a period of longing and determination to lead a holy life. The ideal life towards which the person is striving is more distinctly present in consciousness than was true before conversion. The effect of conversion seems to be, as we saw in part one, to bring a possible righteous life and the old imperfections into sharp contrast. There is the same persistent struggle after the higher life as we found there, but in an exaggerated form. The final attainment of the desired experience is conditioned, just as was conversion, by faith, self-surrender, and consecration. This was mentioned by 23 of the respondents as an important element of the realization of the second experience. One of them writes, I had been told that implicit faith was a prerequisite. With positive belief came the experience. Another, who had tried long in vain, says, Then I went on my knees alone, determined to get the victory. I made a complete consecration of all I had and all I was to God. I felt that God had accepted my offering and that all sin was taken out of my heart. Perfect self-surrender seems to be an even more inevitable condition of sanctification than of conversion. One man describes visibly how the Lord tested him with one demand after another, and the experience came only after he had expressed his willingness to renounce everything, even, finally, his family ties. After all the longing and striving, and then the faith and self-surrender, the part played by those forces which are outside of one's immediate control are more prominent than is the case in conversion. The element of spontaneity, of unconscious activity of the mind, the work of the Holy Spirit, which we found to be common to all the groups studied, is even more markedly and persistently present at this crisis. One person, for example, says, In describing the event, I was walking alone over the fields and suddenly filled with the most marvelous power. The impulse sometimes comes as a force that is not to be withstood. I was doing my morning housework and felt an irresistible desire to pray. Three times I was thus called away from my work. Another was so powerfully impelled that while going home from meeting, he kneeled down in the rain and mud and prayed. He goes on to say, Suddenly the darkness of the night seemed lit up. I felt, realized, knew that God had answered my prayer, 
and a feeling of sweet peace and satisfaction and happiness came over me. I felt that I was accepted into the inner circle of God's loved ones. Two persons woke up with it after a night's rest. It will be recalled that we pointed out in the discussion of similar instances of conversion how common it is for the mind to solve its problems during sleep. The feeling of God's forgiveness, the freedom from the sense of sin, prominent at the critical point in conversion, is one of the most frequently expressed characteristics of sanctification. But the form of expression has changed. While the former was a mere act of pardon, this issue is described as a complete cleansing. These are typical. I felt pure and clean, so that I wished I were made of glass, so that everyone could look within my heart. I had the witness of God's Spirit that a clean heart had been created within me. Self-mastery and a real purification of my nature became manifest in me. The work of forgiveness seems to be more thorough. It involves one's entire being. The person feels not only that his sins have been forgiven, but that he has been made wholly pure. The sense of oneness with God or Christ, another immediate result of conversion, is likewise emphasized in sanctification. It is now expressed with greater fullness of feeling. The last assurance came that God had taken me for his own and had come to abide. My joy was full. It brought me to a deeper consciousness of God's presence. A sense of perfect harmony with God and joy unspeakable filled my heart. A deeper composure seized me, a sense of divine nearness. In view of all these similarities, the question arises, wherein does sanctification differ from conversion? Does it bring with it any new, over and above, what was experienced in conversion? For the distinction, we shall rely first upon the testimony of the respondents, most of whom attempted an answer to the question, and later on we shall interpret the difference in the light of the experiences which intervene between conversion and sanctification. As told by the respondents, the distinction is expressed tersely by one of them thus. It was the climax of the spiritual development that had been going on within me. It differed from conversion not in kind but in degree. This gives the spirit of most of the others, and almost the manner of expression of many of them. The specific ways in which it is a culmination of conversion are along the lines of the chains wrought then in one's nature. Evil habits are more completely broken up. For example, at conversion I experienced pardon from sin, a new heart, a disposition to do right, although an evil tendency remained. Sanctification took away this tendency. The feeling of harmony with God is heightened. Sanctification brought a fuller consciousness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification brings with it a fullness and all-aroundness of experience which is new. The joy of conversion has been enlarged so that it approaches a state of ecstasy in which one's whole nature participates. I was cleansed from all sin and filled with the fullness of God as I had not been at conversion. Conversion was a consecration to God. Sanctification was an exalted state of soul, an indwelling of power. In these instances one sees also the heightened subjectivity of experience which we shall find to be one of the distinguishing aspects of sanctification. But so far as understanding sanctification in psychological terms is concerned, we are yet on the outside of it. What is going on beneath the surface when persons who already had a sudden awakening into religious truth profess instantly to be lifted to a yet higher plane of religious life? We can adequately appreciate the mental processes involved in it and their significance in religious development only by following up the experiences which intervene between conversion and sanctification. The number of years between the two events varies. They range from two months to forty years. It is a singular fact, the cause of which is not clear, that sanctification is likely to fall inside of the first year after conversion, or to be postponed for at least twenty years. 
Considerably more than half of the cases occur either before the first year has ended or after a period of 20 years has elapsed. It appears that the time of least frequency with which sanctification follows conversion is 5 to 10 years. The fact of greatest significance in the light it throws on sanctification in regard to this intervening period is that 80% of the persons who have troubled and uneven growth. This, it will be recalled, is about the same percentage of storm and stretch we found among the hundreds of persons studied in the last chapter. The difficulties encountered by these respondents are the same ones described there, and to set them forth in detail would be but repetition. The enthusiasm aroused at conversion is intermittent. Uncertainty occasionally arises as to whether the experience was genuine. Doubts are frequent, incident upon the striving for a clear horizon. They are the same storm and stress phenomena with which we have become familiar. The old life professedly abandoned at conversion is continually cropping up. Temptations recur in the direction of former evils. The sense of sin and imperfection persists, all of which shows that the old life, although it is for a time lost sight of, still exists in the fiber of one's being and has by no means entirely dropped away. Interpreted from the psychological point of view, the whole struggle after conversion and the consequent necessity which many persons feel of passing on to a second work of grace grows out of the conflict between an old habitual life and a new set of functionings which have not yet become well established in the nervous mechanism. The new set of activities are those connected with the association centers in the brain and correspond to spiritual insight. The old habitual activities are those which constitute the lower reflex, sensuous arcs in the nervous structure, which they have been ingrained during all the preceding years into its tissue. Not until adolescence are the more higher psychic powers aroused in earnest. The function of conversion is to set them going for religious ends. The person, to be sure, has acted as if he were a spiritual being. But in so far as there has been self-direction, the lower centers have been organized simply within their own sphere, they have been a law to themselves. But now, after the higher centers are awakened, after the person in conversion has accepted the spiritual life as his own, those activities remain a law in one's members, which wars against the higher. Sanctification is a fresh affirmation when the new life has become established that the old one does not exist. If we notice the nature of the difficulties after conversion, we find none of them which do not fit readily into this conception. In a description like the following, one might suppose the person were trying to set forth in figurative language the brain-tracked idea. The tree of sin had been cut down, but the young sprouts of temper, pride, and many others were springing up from the old root. In other words, the old synthesis of the nervous discharges had been shattered, but the nerve elements continued to come together bit by bit into their old combinations, and these were inharmonious with the new spiritual attitude. After persistent effort toward a life which is wholly spiritual, the nervous system forms itself in that direction. The new set of activities furnish a substantial basis for the conduct of life. When this same respondent became conscious of new power, the step by which he identified himself with it was sanctification. He himself had apparently been ignorant of the strength that had been accumulating. When it arose into consciousness, it marked a great event. After sanctification, he carries out the same figure and says, I know that it took all the roots of envy, jealousy, malice, hatred, false pride, bitterness, and impatience out of my heart. This is expressed in many ways. One person in describing the life after conversion writes, My self-control was not fully complete. I gave way to anger. My life was more or less checkered. A tendency to evil still remains. 
Although at conversion there has been pardon for sin and a new heart, a tendency to evil remained. Sanctification took away this tendency. But not only must the old habits be broken, an entirely new set of habits must be formed and must have time to become ingrained into the nervous tissue. At conversion the person has accepted a new ideal as his own. It is vivid and real enough, but it exists largely as a possibility for future development. Before it can supplant the old life, it must become real in the same sense as the old was real. The person is usually thrown into wholly different surroundings, which demands changed modes of life. Church going, saying prayers, participating in the sacraments, taking part in the ritual, taking on occasion upon religious topics, all these things and a hundred more are foreign. The chances are to his way of thinking and acting. He must act as if he understood them all. They cannot really be his until they are worked over through habit and become part of his physical and spiritual makeup. He is like a little child who was thrown into the world where an entirely strange environment is to be assimilated. But there is this difference, that he is usually expected to learn to adapt his life in the new way without sufficient tutelage. Unless he has already been ripe for the fresh insight and new activities, he has difficulties in making the readjustment. Hence results the friction which so often follows conversion, an irritation, a discontent. One person who represents a large number of her kind writes, I experienced temptations and was discontented. I did not feel that I was in accord with Christian standards. The way was uncertain and uneven. I felt dissatisfied and was filled with unrest. But after sanctification, the story is changed. I became courageous and willing to show my colors. I felt nearer to God in my prayers. One now feels at home in the new life. With these facts in mind, we are able to read with a greater degree of clearness all of the accounts of sanctification. One of the respondents says, Conversion removed the sense of condemnation and brought into my heart peace towards God in a fervent love that prompted an earnest effort to lead a Christian life. Sanctification removed from within my heart all sense of depravity, weakness, and fear, making the service of God a delight. I had more courage and strength to discharge Christian duty. It far exceeded in depth and fullness the first blessing. Thus we have seen how rarely it is that peace and discontentment are attained after conversion until the old habits which contradict the new attitude are completely broken. A life of harmony cannot be reached until the new set of activities have become habitual and carry with them a tone of familiarity. Sanctification is a step, usually after much striving and discontent, by which the personality is finally identified with the spiritual life, which at conversion exists merely as a hazy possibility. The difficulties experienced after conversion have now been largely overcome. Twenty-two of the cases record that they have altogether disappeared. Seventeen say that they have lessened. The persons are tempted, to be sure, are confessed by forty-three of the fifty-one, but there is not the disposition to yield. One writes, The old temptations would arise, but strength from God made resistance easy. Another expresses the same thing in a terse and suggestive way. Temptations from without still avail me, but there is nothing within to respond to them. Three of the number report that they are not even tempted. It will be recalled that one pronounced feature of adult religion in the conversion group was their great sense of religion as a subjective possession. This is even more marked among those who have experienced sanctification. In fact, one meaning of sanctification is that now the person feels right with God. He appreciates religion as his own. God is his friend and companion. 
When I was converted, the Holy Spirit came to be with me. When I was sanctified, He came into my heart. I had a rich consciousness of the incoming of the Holy Spirit, an unspeakable fullness of blessedness. The richness of inward experience is in exact contrast with the state shortly after conversion when the first enthusiasm had passed. That condition is represented in the following extracts. At times, I felt a fear of death and wondered if there were not an experience beyond this that I could attain. I had a longing for a steadier and more satisfactory experience. There was a steady and rapid growth toward sanctification, but I did not realize the fullness of religion. The state which is striven after and which is attained at sanctification is that in which the person is no longer a mere participant in the divine life, but is a medium through which it expresses itself. One sees the same thing illustrated in a similar way in matters that are commonplaces in everyday life. In learning to play a game, an athlete soon becomes aware of his ability to perform the necessary feats skillfully. He sometimes awakens suddenly to an understanding of the fine points of the game and to a real enjoyment of it, just as the convert awakens to an appreciation of religion. But if he keeps on engaging in the sport, there may come a day when all at once the game plays itself through him, when he loses himself in some great contest. In the same way, a musician may suddenly reach a point at which pleasure in the technique of the art entirely falls away, and in some moment of inspiration he becomes the instrument through which music flows. The writer has chanced to hear two different married persons, both of whose wedded lives had been beautiful from the beginning, relate that not until a year or more after marriage did they really awaken to the full blessedness of married life. So it is with the religious experience of these persons we are studying. The new life begun at conversion must be lived before it can be appreciated from within. Sanctification is the condition in which one has so completely assimilated spiritual truth that he feels himself one with it, in which he awakens to the inner realization of its meaning, in which he attains the state wherein the divine life can freely express itself through him. The increased subjectivity and inner appreciation of religion which accompanies sanctification does not come without a sacrifice. There is, at the same time, a deciding narrowing of the range of interest in outward things. This is the obverse side, and is perhaps an inevitable consequence of the awakening of the inner side. The mind seems to have drawn in the tentacles with which it felt its way into the manifold interest of its kind. In certain ways it has lost its touch with the outer world. There is depreciation of all those pleasures that are connected with the life of sense. The condition seems to indicate that after the association centers of the cortex have thoroughly come into activity, the friction between them and the lower brain areas has been removed once for all by a more or less perfect cutting off of the connection between the lower and higher. The association centers are made to constitute a synthesis within themselves. The nervous discharges of the lower, vegetative and sensuous areas are kept within their own range. That fraction of these impulses which is constantly trying to discharge through the association centers is continually inhibited. The process is helped along by branding everything bound up with the lower centers as sin. This condition in which the association centers connected with the spiritual life are cut off from the lower is often reflected in the way the respondents describe their experiences. One of the quotations above, for example, is now clear, in which the person says, Temptations from without still assail me, but there is nothing within to respond to them. The ego is wholly identified with the higher centers, whose quality of feeling is that of withinness.
Another of the respondents says, Since then, although Satan tempts me, there is, as it were, a wall of brass around me, so that his darts cannot touch me. The wall of brass is a good phrase by which to describe the inhibition of direct connection between the lower and higher centers, and the fact that the person has taken up his abode permanently in the higher, except that the description is perhaps carried too far. It is impossible for the connection to be entirely annulled. The person must keep on eating, breathing, and drinking in and assimilating sense impressions. And it is inevitable that these affect consciousness in at least an indirect way. A more accurate term for the severed relation would be a brass wall with chinks in it. The sensuous and vegetative impulses which leak in are, however, disregarded in the psychic complex involved in the spiritual activities. That this condition obtains is shown in many ways. Twenty-two express, since sanctification, a more intense hatred of sin. Fifteen have become so free from it as to profess perfection. Twenty-four care less for personal adornment. One writes, I can spare no time for anything that is merely for pleasure or personal adornment. Another, I stopped wearing jewelry and extravagant dress. Thirty-four regard most amusements as sinful. One says, I do not feel at liberty to attend theaters, play cards, etc. My greatest joy now is to do God's will, and that joy exceeds all other joys of life. One in the enjoyment of a clean heart, perfect love or sanctification, has something so much better than the world offers in the way of amusement, personal adornments, art, secular readings, science, intellectual pursuits in general, that it seems but folly to come down to them. It is interesting to note in this connection that certain denominations which have split off in order to emphasize spirituality and religion have laid stress on the importance of simplicity and dress and entire unworldliness. Dancing, card playing, theater going, racing, and the like are usually condemned in their church disciplines and are tabooed as worldly, even aside from the gambling and other immortality sometimes bound up with them. The mystics were in the habit of shutting themselves in for the sake of making it easier to engage in quiet contemplation. The customs of the monks and aesthetics, too, were an historical development which seems to correspond with this tendency in individuals. Their seclusion and renunciation of all pleasures were means of facilitating a separate independent development of the association centers. Kant found that he could better engage in philosophical thought while gazing steadily at a neighboring church steeple. Plato believed that the senses vitiated the wisdom of the true philosopher. All of these instances seem to have something in common, namely the sacrifice which it is necessary to make in the cultivation of the sensuous life in order that there be a specialization of energy in the brain areas involved in the higher psychic functions. The loss of interest in worldly things by those who profess sanctification is the sacrifice they make in order to become spiritual creatures. This is in line with the normal development of adolescence. Experimental tests have established the fact that when the ability to reason and the other mental activities which indicate increased power in the higher brain areas begin to function in earnest, the senses not only fail to keep up their former rate of development, but even decline in efficiency. Sanctification carries this process one step further and aims at complete freedom from the life of the senses. It is but a corollary of what has already been said to point out how readily sanctification passes over into a pathological condition. The frequency with which these persons become inmates of asylums itself indicates that there is danger 
in this extreme advance toward spirituality of losing balance. The signs of abnormality which sanctified persons show, judged by the standards of what constitutes a normal citizen, are of frequent occurrence. They get out of tune with other people. Often they will have nothing to do with churches which they regard as worldly. They become hypercritical towards others. They grow careless of their social, political, and financial obligations. As an instance of this type may be mentioned a woman of 68, of whom the writer made a special study. She had been a member of the most active and progressive churches in a busy part of a large city. Her pastor described her as having reached the censorious stage. She had grown more and more out of sympathy with the church. Her connection with it finally consisted simply in attendance at prayer meeting, at which her only message was that of reproof and condemnation of the others for living on a low plane. At last she withdrew from fellowship with any church. The writer found her living alone in a little room on the top story of a cheap boarding house, quite out of touch with all human relations, but apparently happy in the enjoyment of her own spiritual blessings. Her time was occupied in writing booklets on sanctification, page after page of dreamy rhapsody. She proves to be one of a small group of persons who claim that entire salvation involves three steps instead of two. Not only must there be a conversion and sanctification, but a third which they call crucifixion or perfect redemption, and which seems to bear the same relation to sanctification that this bears to conversion. She related how the Spirit had said to her, Stop going to church, stop going to holy meetings. Go to your own room and I will teach you. She professes to care nothing for colleges or preachers or churches, but only cares to listen to what God says to her. Her description of her experience seemed entirely consistent. She is happy and contented, and her life is perfectly satisfactory to herself. While listening to her own story, one was tempted to forget that it was from the life of a person who could not live by it in conjunction with her fellows. Like that of many of her kind, seen simply from its own point of view, her sanctified life is consistent and beautiful enough, but tested by the standard of conduct, of fitting into a useful place in society, it appears extremely circumscribed. This case represents an exaggeration of that tendency in growth which we are now considering. It should be pointed out that there are none of the 51 persons who furnish the basis of study who are not earnest and respected Christians. A singular anomaly meets us in this group, just as in those studied in the last chapter, except that here it is even more marked. Along with a strong tendency toward subjectivity, a narrowing down of objective interests, there is at the same time, when we come to the study of feelings and ideals, the most intense altruism. Love to God and love to man are the mainsprings of action. All who mention the influence of sanctification upon their ideals and feelings, 41 of the 52 say that its effect has been to increase their interest in their fellow men. Nearly all the ideals center in the love and service of God and in helpfulness to their fellows. The explanation of this seems to be, as was pointed out previously, that the brain areas concerned in spiritual activity have been developed in connection with man's life as a social being. It seems that when the higher centers are most cut off from those impulses directly involved in the egoistic life, they take on to the highest degree their own distinctive coloring. From the very beginning it has doubtless been in union with his fellows that the greatest demands have been made on man's intellectual and spiritual powers. 
If this is true, there must be intrinsically bound up in the exercise of these areas the social and altruistic instincts. Hence it is that we find existing side by side a tendency to appreciate religion as a personal experience and an impulse toward the service of God and man, extreme subjectivity and intense altruism. These two tendencies are the same which stood out clearly in the adult life of those who had not experienced conversion. Indeed, it seems that sanctification corresponds in some measure to the period of reconstruction in the other group. Aside from the similarity which has been pointed out, there is coincidence in the age at which they occur. There are only two cases of sanctification under 20 years of age, although all but five of the respondents were over 30 at the time when they wrote their records. Far more occur between 20 and 30 than during any other decade. This is exactly what we found in regard to the age of Reconstruction. Sanctification seems to bear the same relation to conversion as does Reconstruction to the early adolescent awakenings. Both are separated from their antecedent experiences by a period of storm and stress and doubt, of adolescent instability. In both, the end of this period is marked by a transition into a life which is self-possessed, constructive, positive, and guided by social impulses. We have, then, this interesting result that religious growth, which is attended by sanctification in many of its essential aspects, reaches the same culmination as do the other two lines of development previously described. There are, to be sure, many differences, principally differences in the prominence of certain qualities of feeling, certain peculiar emphasis in ideals and beliefs, distinctive tones and colorings in the spiritual life, which seem to rest back fundamentally on differences of temperament. But in all three groups we find, after the credulity of childhood, a welling up in adolescence of instinctive religious feeling, followed by the formative period during doubt and storm and stress of latter adolescence, and this in turn merging into the self-possessed, active, helpful life of manhood and womanhood. End of chapter 29.